Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of FYI. For your innovation, my name is Nicholas Gerse. I'm an analyst working on the next generation internet theme here at ARC. And today we have two very special guests on the podcast. Uh, we have Philip Rosdale, founder of Second Life and current CEO and founder of High Fidelity, which is a real-time spatial audio solution. Uh, we also have Angie Dalton, who will act as co-host and guest today. Um, Angie is an advisor and theme developer for ARC, as well as the founder and CEO of Signum Growth Capital. Um, Angie and Philip uh, will be on talking today about the metaverse. We get into everything, VR, AR, uh, cryptocurrency, lifelike avatars, the uncanny valley, you name it, we talk about it. Uh, what is necessary for the development of the metaverse? How long will this take? What it looked like 10 years ago, what it looks like today, and what it's going to look like in 10 years. I hope you enjoy. We'll start off with Philip and Angie. We'll start to join in around the 10-minute mark here. Um, but please enjoy today's episode. Um, we're really excited for you to listen. Thank you, everyone. You know, when I was listening to you, I heard the, I think it was, you were speaking, I think it was Singularity University, you were talking about the genesis moment of Second Life and that idea for you. And you said it was something you had thought of and were, you know, kind of building since you were a kid. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I remember like dreaming. I remember dreaming about like floating in space with like a tool belt. I was like a, an astronaut or something, but I'm, I'm out in space and there's nothing there. And I'm, I've got a tool belt and I've got like a tool of some kind that like makes walls. And I remember having this like fantasy as a kid. This is this was probably like in high school and college where I was imagining VR. I was imagining like it would be so amazing if you could just be like this spaceman sort of floating in empty space and then making things out of nothing, you know, creating uh, surfaces and walls and things and sort of moving them around and then, you know, building. I mean, so I remember that as a really early um almost kind of a fantasy about what you could do with virtual worlds. And then in the in the 80s and 90s, you know, there was this first wave of work around VR headsets. And so I was really into electronics and hardware and software and everything. And so I was always also thinking like, how could you build the interface that would let you put your body into a space like that, you know? And so like, I kind of had like a two paths. Like one was a fascination with what kind of stuff would get built. Like what would a world be like that was built out of atoms, you know, out of some kind of digital atoms by people. And then there was this other piece that was like, how would you get into that world and feel things or, you know, hold something heavy in your hands, you know? And so it was kind of like two uh, paths that I was interested in. 
That's amazing. And was there, I guess, a moment in time that you, or, you know, were there any like technological advances that you were watching where you then knew like, okay, what I want to do is now technically possible. Like what were those kind of leapfrog moments in tech that allowed for sec cause second life. I mean, we're, we're going all the way back to 99 and to, you know, early two thousands. And that's just thinking about this idea back then with what was available. It just is so far out. It was like so ahead of its time. And to think that we had tech capable of, you know, this virtual world, I'm just curious, like what, what did you see that you said, okay, we can do this now. I was thinking about building a virtual world in the late 80s and then in the 90s. And then when I came to Silicon Valley, San Francisco in 1994, and the internet happened, I did have the thought, well, it's too early still to do anything that could possibly be commercially successful in the way of a virtual world. And so I waited and I worked instead on video compression and ultimately sold my little company that was me and a friend to Real Networks, which was one of the early pioneering companies in the internet around media, streaming media. But in 1999, like you said, you're right, which is when I started Second Life, there were two things that happened at the same time. The first one was the knee of the curve for broadband happened. So that was the transition from dial-up phones to broadband. So you went from 20 kilobits per second to about... 200 kilobits per second, you know, for the earliest broadband. And that happened, really happened in about 1999. So that was one thing. And then the second technology change was that NVIDIA released the first capable 3D graphics card that was like in all of the computers or all of the desktop computers. And that card was called the GeForce 2. And the GeForce 2 was in like all the like Dell computers and stuff that you would buy for the desktop in 1999. So it was those two things. It was the, the GeForce 2 and then broadband coming online. And that at, right at that moment, I was like, I got to leave real networks and I got to go start this crazy virtual world thing. And so what did those early days feel like for, you know, building Second Life, building this virtual world? Were you getting, you know, crazy looks from investors and from people saying, you know, wait, what are you talking about exactly? A virtual world? What does that mean? Is this a video game? Is this, you know, what did that feel like at the time? Yeah, I tell you, you know, uh, well, first of all, most people don't know, but when I actually started the company, Andrew and I, the guy who had gone to college with me and uh, came on as the first employee at Second Life, the two of us actually built this crazy, crazy piece of equipment, which we called the rig, which was basically something like those, those little coffins that people got in in the movie Avatar to like go and become an avatar. The idea was that it would basically immobilize you. It, it wouldn't, it, you'd, you'd basically be kind of like stuck in this machine that wouldn't let you move, but then your avatar would move the way you were trying to move by essentially putting force on the machine. And it was this crazy, crazy idea that was actually the very beginning, about the first year of Second Life, we worked on that. And then I think some of the earliest investors and, you know, people like Mitch Kapoor, who was the big believer in the project and the first investor, and, you know, we would not, Second Life would not exist today without his efforts. He, I think, saw us building that crazy gadget and was like, you know, anybody crazy enough to build this thing is going to go on to build something you know in virtual worlds but we basically did this crazy hardware thing first and then we shifted to building the software of second life 
And that was also really hard to fund. Like the early investors that would look at it, yeah, they just thought we were absolutely crazy. Like it did not make any of the sense that, you know, the metaverse or whatever conversation set makes today. Wow. And so maybe for, you know, those that are going to listen to this and are listening now, how would you describe Second Life? How would you describe kind of the the early years of Second Life, how it, you know, what it ended up morphing into? It's still around today. What's kind of the history of the project? What does it look like today? Well, Second Life was this experiment to build one single large virtual world that everybody was in together and that had land and and would allow people to build things together in any way they wanted to. And so the critical things that it had that were still that are still very unique aspects today was it had an economy, it had a currency, it had a digital currency right from the beginning. And then the, so that people could trade with each other. And then the other thing was it had a live set of building tools so that if you wanted to build a chair or a grandfather clock or a car or something like that, you could literally do that with your mouse and keyboard with other people standing there watching you, talking to you. So it was this very like live building combined with a real economy. And then ultimately avatars, you know, that could that could look like anything people wanted. You know, the second life that, you know, kind of skyrocketed into public awareness in 2006, it's still actually about the same size and scale and feature set that it had then. Like it's, we pretty much were done with it by about then in terms of its basic capabilities. And that's still what, drives its use and uniqueness today. And what what is the size and what is, you know, what is happening in Second Life today? I if we've talked before and you've you've thrown out some crazy stats where I'm still like, oh my God, you know, this is happening today on Second Life. Second Life today is still in a lot of different ways. I can give you some of the numbers. It's still bigger than crypto in some ways. And it's just still this enormous, interesting uh, experiment. The numbers on Second Life, a million people are still, a million people use it. They're living in a world the size of Los Angeles with individual pieces of land that they all own. So hundreds of thousands of people own the land there and the overall space is the size of LA. And the economy of the world is $650 million a year which translates to like 20 or so transactions between people every second going on in the world. In terms of a, a digital currency, a, a cryptocurrency that's actually used for buying real things um, all the time, it's definitely still the largest. I mean, it's an enormous number of transactions every day. Yeah. Could you talk about the native currency of Second Life and how you've had to set up that economy? Because, you know, this is, this gets into almost like, digital central banking in a way for, you know, a virtual world that is operating as a kind of sovereign state in this digital realm. And you had to create this native token many, many years ago before cryptocurrency was even really thought of. So curious how you set it up back then and how it, you know, what it looks like today. Yeah. So like, let's compare that kind of Genesis moment for Second Life's currency to like the same moment for Bitcoin in 2009. So what happened with Second Life was we knew a lot of people were going to be coming in and signing up. So we knew the population was going to go from small to big. And we knew that we wanted there to be a currency that would allow people to trade with each other. And we knew a couple of other things. One was we knew that people wouldn't use it to buy and sell everyday things as avatars unless the currency was stable. Because if it was going up all the time in price, we knew that they would just hold it, hoard it, as we say today, and wouldn't spend it on anything. And so we knew we had to somehow do something with the way the currency rolled out that made it have a stable price. 
the other thing we needed was it had to have very low or zero fees because we knew that the typical thing people would be buying and selling from each other, well, we didn't know, but we figured it would be a lot cheaper than things in the real world. So, and that's turned out to be true. The average transaction in Second Life is for about $2, which is, which is how you get that huge number of transactions. So it's like 350 million transactions a year, like a million transactions a day, and then $650 million in, in trades. So it's a couple dollars a trade. So we knew we had to build a currency that could transfer between two people could do a very small dollar amount without fees or with very low fees. And the other thing back then, which seems kind of obvious today, but we were figuring that most of the people that would run into each other in Second Life wouldn't know where each other were from. And so statistically speaking, they'd be from different countries. And so you couldn't possibly use like PayPal as the way of paying people because it just wouldn't have worked. And in 1999 or in 2003, it just wouldn't have worked at all. So we had to have a currency, it had to be stable, it had to handle small transactions and it had to be fairly distributed in some way, you know, for people to use it. So you're right. We had to do a bunch of innovation around monetary policy and around distribution strategies to make it work. And, and it worked. Did you run into any regulation back then or was this just totally off kind of the government's radar because it's it was it still is i think so ahead of its time and in, in what second life created back then even if you look at it today it's you know one of the only persistent virtual worlds at, of the, of its size we did not run into too much regulatory uh pressure issues at that time when we started and i'd say there's a couple reasons for that one as you say and it's still true today a lot of this stuff was largely unexplored country. I mean, nobody had ever really asked the question of, you know, if people are buying and selling things from each other in a virtual world and they get in an argument and they want to sue each other, in what country are they suing each other, for example? You know, that, that one, by the way, remains unanswered. I think the other reason was that most of what was happening in Second Life was sort of like new innovative creativity like people were building funny things and selling them to each other and so from the standpoint of the government and this is a contrast from crypto it didn't look like the kind of thing that you could use to avoid taxation it didn't look like the kind of thing that you were going to shift your business into and then you know the regime the regulatory regime was going to be different and also because it was never going up in value there was none of this risk around speculation or security tokens so sec second life was obviously to the government to everybody else never something that you could be investing in for the future. It was only a stable coin in today's lingo. So that whole side of it, the speculation and, and gambling um, and future gains side of it, we never had to deal with that. Nobody, it, it didn't make any sense. It, we, we obviously weren't doing that. And so now that we do have that, now that we do have crypto playing a role in virtual worlds, I'm curious, what are your thoughts? And then Angie, I'd love to get your thoughts here as well as you're you know, investing in this space, watching it very closely, how do you see this intersect between crypto and virtual worlds playing out? Now that you do have the speculation, you do have regulations coming for the space potentially, like what does this look like? Hi, Angie. Hi there, how are you? So from my perspective, I, um, I think the ethos of crypto, the ethos of Web3 is about democratization. It's about self-sovereign wealth creation. It's about access to the masses. And I think that what we're seeing so far is ironically very counter to that. I think that what uh, Philip created in Second Life is more aligned, ironically, with the true crypto ethos. 
And while it's very, it feels very good to 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 say that you're anti-inflation and that and that you know Bitcoin is is a you know a hedge against inflation. And, and I'm a Bitcoiner and I believe that as well. But when you have a fixed number of assets, which a lot of these games and crypto do have a fixed number of assets, by definition, the people who come into the, to the world later are going to make less money. And in fact, they're probably going to lose money. And um, it's just in gaming, because I focus most of my time in gaming, gaming meets crypto. It's, it's been tough. It's been tricky because it, I think that, um, you know, actually the way to democratize uh, crypto in, inside games is really through more inflationary um, moves. Yeah, I mean, to add to what Angie said, I, I think that Second Life is a different kind of experiment than some of, for example, the play-to-earn games, because in the case of Second Life, yeah, you create something which is genuinely of value, or not, <laughs> you know, through your own efforts in the world, and then you try to sell it to other people. And so there is a real value that's being created associated with your creative efforts that you've put into the world. And that's obviously different than some of the games which have taken a variety of different approaches, but in many cases, it's harder because they're sometimes, you know, splitting up a fixed pool of money with, as Angie said, that problem that, you know, maybe the people that got in earlier have an even larger share of it and it's going down over time. And so that's kind of a different experiment. But Second Life was definitely the dream of enabling people to create individually creative works and then sell those as products and services to each other in the world. So yeah, that was what we worked on. And that's why we had to do all this monetary policy so that we didn't get inflation for, or de deflation, you know, increasing the price of the, the base token. Um, you know, we, we had to solve for that so that it could really be just people's individual creative efforts that say set the prices of things. And just, just to add to that, I think there's a separation between the creativity and collaboration, which is, I think, uh, really, that's the backbeat in, in behavioral change that, that is going to drive us into this. And I think that the incentives align toward creators being, being able to make things and create their own markets and engage with other markets inside a metaverse. All of that is really, really interesting. It's the actual currency, I think, that can become a problem. But the creativity and collaboration and creating brand new things is, um, is really, really exciting. It's almost like we're entering the ultimate creator economies, like the metaverse itself. And I do want to transition to this term, this idea that's come so popular in the last year or so, which, you know, Second Life was probably a metaverse ahead of its time a virtual world ahead of its time. So one, I just would love to hear what, you know, the term metaverse, like what does that mean to each of you? And then maybe we can go just kind of deeper into each layer of it because there's so much that the word seems to represent, but I think it's important to parse those out because not everything is necessary for it, but a lot of what we talk about when we do talk about the metaverse can enhance the experience. So curious what the metaverse, what the metaverse means to you. Let me maybe start on that. I, I think the metaverse, and, and, and obviously that word goes back to 1991. Um, so it's a pretty old word. You know, people have been familiar with the idea for quite some time. But I, I think when people say that word, they're often mixing or perhaps conflating or, or, or mixing up two different big changes that are coming that are technology-driven changes. 
the first change is going from 2D to 3D. You know, as we all know, most of the internet as we know it today is 2D. But when you look at video games and stuff, you say, hey, wait a second, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm doing on the internet, wouldn't it be more natural if it was in 3D? And I think there are lots of reasons to answer yes to that question. And so there's there are certainly a lot of things we're doing today with the internet that as technology enables it, we'll, we'll do it in 3D. Not everything, by the way, I think there are problems. I mean, we, we don't actually want to do everything in 3D, but certainly lots more than what we're doing today. So that's the first thing is this 2D to 3D transition. Thing number two, though, that's very different is the idea of an internet where there are always other people. The internet today is lonely. You know, shopping online is a very point, pointed thing. You know, you, you go in typically with a text search and you're going after one thing and you buy it and it shows up at your house a couple of days later. It's very boring. It's very lonely. It's not social in the slightest, right? But obviously there's a lot of things that we like to do as human beings that are inherently social. You know, like a live music experience is always driven in part by the presence of other people. And so there's this second big idea, which is, hey, and of course, Zoom, you know, and COVID has given us a close look at this. Hey, uh, couldn't we build an internet where there was other people? What would it be like to have a version of the internet where there were always other people, the same way that if you're in a city or something, there are always other people? So I think that second one of adding people to the internet is the more important meaning of the word metaverse. And also it's the one that is more fraught with peril <laughs> relative to how we actually get there and what problems we have to solve. Just want to add to that because uh, I always say we were zoomed into the metaverse by COVID. <laughs> because I feel like that was really the first application where people actually understood what it was about. And like you said, Bill, I hadn't actually thought about that. The fact that there are multiple people there on the Zoom. What I had thought about was multi-sensory, the fact that you have true visual, true auditory. And we could do it before, but we weren't forced to do it in groups. And the fact that it tricked our minds. And when we run into people, we ask, do we, did we, have we met before in person or we, have we only met in Zoom? You know, it, it kind of tricks your mind because You've got multi-sense, you know, many senses going at once. And I think for me, that was the aha moment. The metaverse to me is multi-sensory uh, and it's a human understanding of what's real. So then just kind of to, to summarize then, it's is the metaverse itself less so about these virtual worlds and more so about this shift in how we understand and interact online? Or are these, you know, virtual worlds going to end up being the next, you know, website we use on a daily basis, like a Facebook or Instagram? Is it like that shift of like how we interact daily? Is that more like the concept of the metaverse? The metaverse isn't just one place online. It's not what Facebook is building with Horizons. It's more like this growing abundance of 3D experiences. Is that the best way to understand it then? As Angie said, we were we were zoomed into this. I think that's the great right way to put it. We we were zoomed into this. I, I think what happened was we had this public health catastrophe. We all had to stay at home, or a lot of us had to stay at home. And then we immediately began asking the question, well, crap, that means I've got to do happy hour online. I've got to go to music online. And so we basically started using Zoom for all that, you know. And what we discovered was it's very hard. You know, I, I always tell people whenever I talk about Zoom, I say, do you remember those 
few sad times in March and April of 2020 where you tried to have those happy hours with your friends and then gave up. And the question is, why did we all give up? I mean, we went and made our drinks and then we got with our friends on Zoom and, you know, six, six people or whatever. And we all had our drinks and we pretended to cheers and then we talked. Why is it that we quit doing that after a couple of weeks? I mean, it's really interesting. I, I didn't predict it. I, I was, of course, you know, as somebody who's worked so much on this, I was like kind of fascinated, you know, what will happen when people try to use Zoom to have happy hour? But yeah, I think that's the challenge. And I think, as like Angie said, we were Zoomed into it. Like now we're at this point where we're realizing, hey, there's got to be a way to do some social stuff, going to a conference, something like that. There's got to be a way to make that work that's somewhat better than Zoom. And I think in a way, that's kind of what everybody's saying. You know, there's a lot of the excitement is like, there's got to be a solution here. Once we get to it, we'll all be online socializing more. And of course, there's a lot of money there. Companies are interested because, you know, if there's any sort of tax to be imposed or fees to be made on those social experiences, that's going to add up to a ton of money. Yeah, I, w- I would love your view on this, Philip, because I, um, I think a lot about VR and the fact that Zoom, as simple as it is, actually potentially leapfrogged some of what goes on in VR because you don't have to put something on your head. It's not as, you know, kind of clunky. And I think that it's almost like uh, it just it raised the bar for the experiences that we're going to be that we're going to be demanding. We're, we're going to want it to be this and that and and more. And and I think that, I you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's got to be, I mean, first of all, it's got to be easy, right? Like a lot of the metaverse stuff we're talking about right now, a lot of, a lot of the numbers that drive what we're, what people are talking about right now today are things like Fortnite and Minecraft and Roblox. Well, guess what? Those are things for seven to 14 year old kids and they are willing to and able to invest skill and time in getting into those environments that we won't. So there's this huge kind of gap that we need to cross just like Angie said, to go from what seven to 14 year olds are willing to do in video games to something that adults would be willing to do as an alternative to Zoom. And I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. And it's, it's gotta be that easy. It's gotta be something you can email your CEO who hasn't tried it yet. And she's going to be able to get in there within five minutes. Right. And then the other thing is it's gotta be expressive. I think that's the other thing about Zoom. We all hate Zoom because when it's a group meeting, we, we get stressed out. Everybody's staring at us, but they're not really making eye contact. But at least we get some information from their face and from their nonverbal cues. And so we have to somehow have something that's incredibly easy to get into and something that conveys nonverbal cues and is probably some kind of a world or environment that's persistent or you know, you go shopping at the same place every time, whatever. But those first couple of things are what we have to get to, and we're not there yet. And so you have particular insight here, Philip, because you're also the founder and current CEO of High Fidelity, which is, you know, real-time spatial audio. So how does not only just the visual cues, but the audio cues play into this kind of next development in terms of how we interact online? Well, audio, as I always say, audio is necessary, but not sufficient to get us to the metaverse. So what happens with audio is when you're in a group of people, like at a cocktail party and you're standing there, two or three of the people you're talking to and a whole bunch of people off in the distance can all be talking at the same time and you can understand what they're here saying. That is an amazing thing, actually, if you think about it. 
it's remarkable, like many things the brain does, it's remarkable that we can do it at all. And the way we do it is we take advantage of where the sounds are coming from as a way of kind of compartmentalizing them in our brain, which allows us to understand when people talk at the same time. So basically with high fidelity, and we started this because we were working on full embodied VR solutions, we had to build a spatial audio solution, which is a solution that lets everybody talk at the same time and you hear people's voices coming from the different locations where they are rather than on top of each other. That's the technology we built. It sounds easy to describe in a sentence. It's a lot of technology behind that. So, you know, it took us, we've been working on that for, you know, like eight years to get it right. I actually haven't had a chance to let you know this, but remember when we did the bus tour? Uh, so Nick and Kathy and I hosted a bus tour through all the different metaverse spaces, Decentraland, CryptoVoxels, and they are mostly crypto spaces other than Spatial Web, uh, which you developed the audio for. For the ARK Innovation Center, uh, we are actually uh, working heavily with Eric to try to figure uh, out how to how to do something with the ARK Innovation Center because it's so much easier. <laughs> it's 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 going to be hard to onboard a lot of people when you have to have MetaMask and crypto and and everything and then create an avatar. It's it's a it's a high barrier to entry, I think, for a lot of people. Whereas the the spatial web space with that amazing sound quality is a lot easier. We're almost there with audio. I, I think it's safe to say in any kind of an investor's runway, we're totally there. Audio is there. You know, we, it, It's easy to get somebody into a spatial audio space. You can do it with just a link on a website. You can do it with an app like the one we're using right now to record this conversation. So that part is easy. There's a little bit yet to go with Bluetooth. As you know, Angie, we've all been, we're all dealing with Bluetooth all the time. It still doesn't quite do stereo right, so we can't do spatial audio through it. But that's going to all get rolled out by the end of this year, by, by the end of 2022. So everybody will be able to do spatial audio. So yeah, it'll be easy to get into a space that sounds right. And then the question is, what else do we need, you know, other than standing in the darkness, you know, uh, listening to each other? So I have a, I have a kind of a high, just in, you know, hearing this conversation and the way it's fold, you know, unfolding, I have like a high level kind of concern slash question that I want to ask to the group here, just in terms of like, I think what we're talking about is this idea of convenience and like convenient solutions online tend to win out over non-convenient solutions. And so do you ever have any concerns that, you know, it's going to be really hard for VR type of applications, AR applications to compete with, you know, the Instagram and TikTok, this passive consumption where you really have to do almost nothing, but you're constantly and consistently entertained. Do you have any of those concerns of like this tug of war between passive and active consumption of digital entertainment at all? Well, there's kind of the form factor questions there of like, what kind of an interaction with an AR device is as easy as, as scrolling in Instagram, you know, and that's a fair question, but I would, I would throw in another thing, which is something that I talk about a lot. When we think about the dangers of not just a metaverse, but the dangers of how we use technology moving forward, the way I would put it is, if we use technology to take us away from each other, like if we use technology to essentially escape from each other, maybe even from our parents or the person next to us or the other people on the bus, um, we go down a very dangerous road there. 
You know, if we use things like AI to make pretend people that we can talk to who act like us, you know, there's even the weird idea that people have talked about, which is there should be a AI Philip and an AI Angie so that when you go to the ARC Center, you can just sit and chit chat with us, but it's not really us. It's a kind of a dumb version that just acts roughly like we do for you. And so you can kind of imagine that Angie and Philip like you because our avatars always smile and they like you. I think that direction for humanity is extraordinarily dangerous. We are social creatures and we're designed to spend a large fraction of our living time with each other and help each other. And so the progress of technology, and this is one of the big risks of the metaverse, has to be to bring us closer together as we were trying to do with Zoom. It has to be to bring us closer together and to bring us into contact with each other in real time more so than to move us further away from each other. And that's one of the, you know, as as a, you know, an elder statesman I guess now in this stuff that's one of the things that I really want to get across to people in every opportunity I have is to say, think very carefully about this. We can do the right thing, but it's toward each other, not away from each other. That's uh, interesting because one of the first NFT artists that really spoke to me was Micah Johnson. And he, uh, he was at the Christie's Tech Conference. And he said, what's going on here is buying is the new liking. I don't know who these Instagram followers are. There are bots. There are millions of, I don't know who, but it's a one-way street in terms of communication. When I go into the Discord, I'm having a two-way dialogue with people who have actually bought my work, who have collected it, and I'm having real conversations. The proximity, that was the light bulb that went on in my head is the distance between creator and fan is just shrinking dramatically. And that's more real. And I think that's what you're talking about, Philip. I mean, that is, he said, I would rather have, you know, a fraction of my Instagram followers if it were real and it were two-way. I agree. You know, it's like a way of looking at it is, is that all these uses of technology have almost in every case enabled us to reach more people with lower quality, right? I mean, that's kind of the deal, right? I mean, the people that you live with in your home are the people with whom you have the highest presence. They're the people that you are there with them for better or for worse. And then the internet has given us the ability to have more people in our lives. But I agree with you, Angie, you get to this Instagram like thing where, you know, you're on Twitter and you're like, you know, if I lost my car keys with the people on Twitter, help me. Right. It's like, well, you know, sadly it may not, the truth may not quite be yeah, what you're projecting, right? And and yet, and yet though, don't take a negative view of that, right? People are willing to help each other by default, but you have to have the right kind of transaction or channel between them. And maybe you're right, you know, maybe buying is the new liking in that regard and, and it might create a more intimate connection. And yeah, if so, let's let's put more wood behind that and see what happens. And I think that people in your Discord probably would help you. I mean, I think that that I, I, Nick knew exactly where I was going with that. He's not. That's what I was. I was going to say that. Angie. <laughs> the the that's the power of Discord, right there. They this platform for authentic communities, people who actually care about each other and actually care what each other say and contribute. Yep. And I guess now we just have to answer the question of how we get that to be inclusive. You know, to be broadly inclusive. You know, how how do we make it so that that is as available to everybody? the Discord channel, if you will, we need to make it as available to everybody as liking on Instagram is, you know, to your point. 
yeah, bringing that concept and idea to the masses, because at least, you know, the way the early NFT, a lot of the early NFT projects have shaped up, it's a bit exclusive in the, you know, the manner of, you know, there's only 10,000 of these. So it'd be great to see more projects that are larger in size that are, you know, wanting to bring as many people in as possible and not have that speculation involved, which is, you know, getting back to kind of the second life and, you know, what you were able to do there. You know, I always come back to this when, you know, when we have this conversation about would the people in Discord help you? I, I always come back to this word trust, right? And of course, the word trust comes up a lot around cryptocurrency, but it's it's used in this very odd way where we, we at least in my opinion, odd, where people talk about, you know, what's great about cryptocurrency is that you don't need to trust anyone. You can just trust the algorithm. And I actually just completely disagree with that. I think that that's not the... The, the future of humanity is not to distrust everyone. And, and, you know, one of the negative critiques that I make of cryptocurrency is that in some ways it demonstrates the price of total distrust. You know, the price of the fees and the fraud and the mining and the, the econo- ecological impact, those are all effectively, if you will, the price of creating a system where no one trusts anyone and everyone is in fact, you know, in some sense motivated to like attack and steal from each other. But the fact is, Conversely, when you look at Discord groups around crypto, right, you see this strong sense of internal community and trust, right? Which is, which in my opinion is what we're trying to get to. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I would push back just a little bit on the trust point because I think that there are, you know, benefits of trustless uh, economies in that if you set something up and you work at it, and the outcome is known in advance or the, the, the people who should benefit from that outcome is almost pre-programmed. That gets rid of a lot of what people that might not be in the room, you know, have had to deal with for many, many years, kind of getting booted out of the room. And I do like the, uh, you know, the way these smart contracts and trustless networks level the playing field. If there's a DAO, and there are a lot of people working in this DAO, it doesn't really see, it doesn't see color, it doesn't see gender, it just, it's almost like the, the technology takes over and the value creation goes back to the participant that contributes the most. And that I think is a pretty beautiful thing, but I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that the CEO of Discord said it best. I mean, I was looking at these crypto uh, discords and they're actually pretty small relative to all the other discords. I mean, as you know, the roots are in gaming, but that but education is even bigger than crypto. There are, um, you know, many, many verticals that are larger than crypto on Discord. And um, the CEO said recently, we're not going to go there yet, even though we like a lot of the ideals, because first we got to take care of scams, spam and fraud or something like that. So to your point. So I have a, a question just to tie these two topics together. One, the metaverse. One, you know, what we're talking about here largely in crypto. Is crypto necessary for the metaverse to evolve? Is it, or is it more of a nice to have? You know, can this concept evolve on its own trajectory without crypto? Can you have, you know, several different, you know, second lives existing without crypto maybe acting as this and I'm maybe hinting at how I believe it could look, but acting as this kind of shared data layer between them, or do you think, you know, this, you know, crypto is its own separate thing? Well, before Angie jumped on, I'll repeat what I said before, which was um, the second life 
requirement that I saw in 1999 for currency was to enable trade. So there was nothing else to it than that. You know, the, the ideas behind cryptocurrency are many. You know, there's many exciting ideas there. Second Life specifically required only one, which was some cross-border, some token that people could use to establish trade so that they could make things and sell them to each other in there. And so I attacked it design-wise very pragmatically. I said, well, there's probably not going to be too much regulation around this right now, so long as we're not providing people with an easy vector for tax evasion or something like that, which we weren't. So we were like, okay, we're going to get away with this. We'll probably have to come around and we'll probably have to look at gambling, which which was true. You know, we'll, we'll probably have to address that somehow, you know, in this big space. But we just wanted to enable trade. And so getting back to your question, I do think that any kind of a creative world or discord or whatever in which people are going to some of the time be creative and sell stuff to each other, you got to have a currency to enable that. Do the existing cryptocurrencies fit the bill for that yet? No, they don't. But there's obviously a lot of work going on and a lot of good questions that have been asked by the whole cryptocurrency such as it is right now that are that are going to get us there but I, I do think to your point i do think for metaverses to become pervasive and useful for us yeah absolutely we need to have some form of uh we need to have an ability to do trade easily in them and we do not have that today and the other thing that i was excited about um back in when i met the gentleman who finalized the erc 721 standard uh for nfts uh, william entrican I was thinking, you know, we've had decades of buying, selling, trading assets in game, you know, World of Warcraft, et cetera, Second Life OG. I mean, when anybody, by the way, I'm at Bitcoin Miami, and when the next person, because it'll happen over and over again, who mentions the OG person in crypto, I'm going to bring up Philip. <laughs> because that's awesome. Such a good story. Such a good story. But anyway, so this, this idea of merging onto the highway of behavior that's already happening in terms of buying, selling, trading assets, makes one think, what, how could we make that better? And I think that what, what struck a chord with me was ownership, because a lot of people played games and lost all their assets uh, in the past. And so that is one. Um, and also this idea where multiple worlds interact. And, you know, the traditional publishers are probably not going to go down that route because they make all their money from IP and keeping it all in one little space. But I just have to believe that these kind of communities, uh, which will become, you know, which, which might start as games, but evolve into backdrops for living, which will be kind of interactive with other communities, will evolve in a way that a currency is a must, as, as you just said, Philip. And I think the thing that's weird is that, and I know you know this, Angie, better than I do because of all your exposure to gaming. The thing that's weird right now is that gaming specifically, most of the games that are out there today, isn't aided in any way by a currency or by content interoperability across between the games. And, and the reason for that is that games are designed to be holistic escapes that provide you with a whole nother world, you know, Star Wars, you know, it's wonderful. And you're in there as a participant, you know, and I, I always say that like the idea of driving your Ferrari from Grand Theft Auto five into among us just makes no sense on so many levels. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always say it's like, 
when people, because back in 2017, 2018, people love to say you're going to take your gun from Call of Duty and take it into Fortnite. And I was like, why would you want to do that? It's like, why, why would you want, it's, it's like going to a movie and deciding to bring your own thought. No, you actually go because somebody spent a lot of time <laughs> crafting that so that you could enjoy it. <laughs> so then do you think the model looks more like, you know, what Fortnite has built where you, you do have the capability to bring assets with you to different experiences? but it's user generated and it's built on the same platform because that's kind of where it merges a bit where you have like one singular platform, but many different experiences built by many different creators. Is that kind of the, I guess, middle ground here? I look at it as the moment that matters is the moment where Angie and I might run into each other while we were playing another game, you know? When we get to a place where I try some new game and then I'm like, oh my God, that's Angie over there. I'm going to go say hi to Angie. So then the question is, what needs to change with games and stuff to make that moment happen for Angie and I? And what needs to change is, is that the games need to be structured deeply around social interaction and that the avatars need to be like themselves so distinctively that I'll be able to recognize Angie even if we're in this some other game, you know? And that then opens the floodgates. Then Angie has an earrings on that she bought that are unique. And, and you know, she's kind of showing off because she's got these incredible earrings on right at this event or at this in this game. But you have to first establish the requirement for like face-to-face -face socialization where people are distinctive in their appearance, right? And once you get to that, then essentially the games all get built around that presumption. But we aren't there yet. That's a really interesting concept because I tried an, a very lifelike avatar and it wasn't a great experience for me. And Nick can tell you because he watched me. I was, I was, I was, I was on the, the brainstorm. It was so embarrassing. I was on brainstorm, the arc brainstorm and other people are talking and my mouth was moving, which was not really that <laughs> great. And then, and then when I was talking and I started laughing, nothing happened with my face. <laughs> so that that it, it just yeah it's we and so then you think okay well then avatars are going to go to the complete creative um you know i'm just going to go super creative on my avatar and make it look nothing like me just make it look really fun and cool and colorful and then it's like well then nobody will recognize me you know angie this is the kind of conversation that i have as often as i can with people that are encountering avatars and the idea of avatars for the first time. And I think you just, you know, you just said it like there are problems like the other people's voices activating your avatar's mouth. That's really uncomfortable and disconcerting and disempowering. There's the issue of right looking like yourself, but not so much like yourself that it gets into this uncanny valley thing, but enough like yourself that you can be distinctive. And you know, there's just a lot of work to do that right. And we're, we're just not there yet with any of the things. And as I said before, what seven to 14 year old kids are satisfied with is not the same thing as what even a 15 year old or a 16 year old wants. And so we've got to get to that. How do we get grownups into social spaces? And then, like I said, build the games around that. Philip, do you think we cross the uncanny valley? And then maybe just, you know, I'm sure people listening on uh, this, you know, 
podcast right now don't understand or haven't heard the concept of uncanny valley maybe you could explain that as well because i do think it's a very core concept to a lot of what we've touched on today yeah people started realizing a long time ago even 100 years ago or so when i think the expression originated that if you made something that looked anthropomorphic if you made something that looked like a person you had this weird thing happen where if you made like a like a pet rock with googly eyeballs on it everybody would be like that is so cute that totally looks and 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 maybe if you gave it a little hair like Angie's hair or something and pet rock with googly eyes and Angie's hair people would be like that is so awesome that's Angie I could tell if we have you know five of us I can pick out which one's Angie and that is a very pleasurable thing and you're like that looks fine that that's great and then what you do is you go down this design road whether it's in video games or in communication or whatever of hey let's make it look more and more and more like Angie or like Philip And what happens is as you get quite close, as you get closer and closer to looking like a real person, and the first people who discovered this work was Pixar and the animators, what you realized is don't go there. If it looks too much like a human, it it becomes uncanny. It looks like a zombie. It looks like it's dead. It looks like something's wrong. And if it's you, I always say the uncanny valley is twice as deep if that's supposed to be you. But we all know the experience of watching those couple of famous um, movies in like the 90s where they really pushed on humans being animated as in the movies. And we all were like, God, that looks creepy, right? That is just terrible. And you'd see Monsters, Inc. And you'd be like, I love Monsters, Inc. Those, the... But that's because they are not too close to human. So they're not uncanny. So that's what the uncanny valley means. When you get closer and closer to human beings, we get extremely demanding about the details. And if they're not right, it looks like it's a dead thing and it's super creepy. So wouldn't that then suggest that, you know, avatars are going to stay, you know, less lifelike and, or do you think we cross the uncanny valley at some point? And many people in the community and have been talking about this, there's this thing called MetaHuman from Unreal that has been very much in the press lately. The answer is we can now render a human face with a gaming engine that is indistinguishable from reality if it's not moving. So if it's just a photograph of that face, we are past the uncanny value now. I don't, there might be a few crazy people that would argue with me, but Everybody in animation, everybody in 3D would tell you that if you look at a meta human on screen with hair and eyeglasses and everything, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's what you would want to look like until it starts moving. <laughs> and then it becomes uncanny again. And the reason for that is because we can't capture the nuances of our faces moving and our bodies moving. Not yet. The computers can't capture that well enough to convey to another machine. That's why Zoom is the only thing that works. What we can do is just show you through a camera lens that other person. But what we can't do yet is look at, you know, Angie has a characteristic expression on her face right now, which is distinctly Angie. She's listening. She's thinking. She's smiling a little bit. You have to convey most of that information, by the way, is in her mouth right now and and in her gaze direction, her eyes. And you have to convey that to her avatar well enough that when I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's Angie. Whoever's running, you know, even if it doesn't look like Angie, the avatar, I would see that that mouth pose and I'd go, oh, that's Angie. We are not there yet, unfortunately. I should say we will get there and we'll probably get there like fairly quickly because everything is driven by Moore's law and, you know, the singularity. So we, we will get there, but it is for grownups today. 
the way our faces move is not nearly good enough yet. The thing that I'm most excited about with Unreal Engine, Unreal Engine 5, is, uh, which you know enables metahumans, is the backdrops being real and the backdrops having that cinematic quality. Because even if the, the myself as an avatar, yourself as an avatar, if we're not real, being able to get together with my friends and watch a movie or a concert in a way that is maybe beyond the Travis Scott concert or the Marshmallow concert, but in a much more kind of real way, even if I'm actually, maybe especially if I'm not real, that might be even more inviting. And by the way, to reiterate what Angie said, if you only change the background so that we all feel like we're in the same room, we like each other and trust each other more. And this is a well-known physiological fact. Yeah, there's just there's just so much to like the development of the metaverse, and we've we've touched on almost all of it. I think I'm curious, uh, you know, final questions here. Just what do you think are going to be some of the big, biggest catalysts going forward in the next few years? Let's keep it in like a five year time range of like what are the biggest catalysts to watch for, to look out for that's going to continue to drive this adoption of metaverse experiences, the metaverse itself. I'm curious from both of you, like, what do you think are important milestones we have to hit and catalysts we need to watch for? Well, I can speak specifically to virtual worlds and then I bet Angie can pull the camera back and add a couple more things. What, what I would say is that expressive avatars like we've been talking about that are, that are adequately social and adult would comfortably use, you know, our, our imagined CEO would, would log in and be like, okay, I'm good with this. That we can expect to see, I think, in the next five years. The second thing is a lot of people being in one place at the same time. Many, many human social experiences require like more than 10 people in the same room. And whether you're talking about Zoom or you're talking about metaverses, we have to get past those numbers. So we have to get to like hundreds of people in the same room at the same time. And, and there again, I think we can get there in the next uh, five years. So that's, that's two things that are required that I see. And I'll just add to that, though, one thing that I'm most excited about is transitions to different activities. And so it's take your, you know, 10 people together and decide whether or not we want to go shopping or we want to go play a game. And that kind of multidimensional space, I think, will make the transitions will feel more real and um, and give me more reason, I guess, to stay. Anytime I get out of a game and go to another thing, like online shopping by myself, as you mentioned, you know, there's friction there. So reducing the friction in transitions in activities will increase engagement in these spaces. That speaks to the metaverse tech exactly like we were saying, transitioning between, say, say games, but transitioning between anything. I, I agree with Angie is we've got to, that, that has to somehow get glued together. And I think that's a lot of the metaverse protocol kind of discussion. Yeah, it's really interesting Like to tie it back to the real world. It's like you're reducing loneliness as you travel from experience to experience. So being able to, you know, transition or, you know, travel from experience to experience with the group you want to, you know, experience whatever it is. I've never thought about it in that way. Like, it would be nice when, and I think, you know, some games have that today when you're waiting in a game lobby, you have the ability to talk with your friends that you're going to, you know, end up playing with. And like, I think that is like a very social feature that a lot of people take for granted for. And so being able to have that as you not only wait to play a new game, but you go shopping, like you said, it's like reducing loneliness. And this gets back to your 
one of your first points here, Philip, which is like the metaverse is this inherently social experience. And so the less friction you can take out of the system, the less loneliness, or if you can remove loneliness in its entirety of digital experiences, we've we've hit the metaverse. We've we've reached this pinnacle of internet experiences. It's it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's it's great. And I mean going back to the middle of the conversation, like Discord groups and people finding other people to hang out with in those Discord groups, there's a great example of where, you know, the enthusiasm around crypto stuff in general has given us a movement in the right direction. Anytime you get people together in a space where they can hang out, get to know each other, you're advancing the cause of human beings. Yeah. Discord has to be one of the most overlooked like metaverse type experiences that people don't yet realize is a metaverse experience because it's real time, it's persistent, it's always on, it's always there. Something is happening. If you if you reach a big enough size in a Discord, there is interaction happening at all times of the day. It's it's you know, without all of the the virtual experiences on top of it, it's largely text-based and and now audio and some video, but yeah, it's really interesting to think about. All right, I think we'll, and Angie, do you have any final words? I was just going to say, this was the most fun I've had in a long time. Anytime I can spend an hour with Philip Rosdale and Nicholas Browse, I'm so happy. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to do it again. We'll, we'll, we'll yes. maybe make this like a, you know, once a quarter type of, I, I had so much fun. So this is like, I think there's, and there's so much to talk about here and there's constant news flow and it's just it's happening right now as we speak you know this is all being built out it's it's crazy times we we get to live and have conversations like these it's such an amazing moment which is you know for for all the challenges that we're all facing right now there's this immense benefit to being able to have such interesting design conversations about the future it's great absolutely yeah and to think about the post-covid world and the la- and the uh, reduction of loneliness that's that's a good thing to think about for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for, for joining. This has been a pleasure. We'll have to have you both back on. There's more to talk about here. Um, but again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, you both. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.